think that a lot of voters are increasingly annoyed with that perception of being owned by the Labour Party. That's that's not the case and are tired of voting tactically for a candidate that they see as the least worst option and are seeing, especially in places like Bristol, Brighton, Norwich, Sheffield, that if they want a Green councillor, they want Green policies, then they can vote Green and they'll get Green. I'm Neil Maggs and this is Bristol Unpacked speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, we talk to Carla Denyer, councillor for Clifton Down and the newly elected co-leader of the Green Party. We talk about how she will build on the national momentum and green surge, key strategies and policies... How this will impact on national politics. Will the Greens be taken seriously and seen as an electoral force? And local politics. Did a certain leader's heart sink when she was announced as leader of the Greens last week? I've got to say congratulations. It's a bit exciting, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it hasn't really sunk in yet, to be honest. When people are like, and this is Carla Denier, the co-leader of the Green Party of England and Wales, I sort of make a face like, oh, is that me? <laughs> Have you been inundated with media approaches? Yes, totally inundated. On the day that we announced, which was Friday, the 1st of October, I was in back-to-back interviews from, well, the announcement was at 10.30 and I was in back-to-back interviews until nearly 6pm that day. Quite and then my, my co-leader, uh, Adrian, was also doing some the next day and then I'm doing loads today as well. <laughs> And it's really positive that um, news outlets that perhaps hadn't previously been so interested in the Green Party are getting in touch. You know, one of the interviews I did on the first day was with the Financial Times, for example. Oh, cool. And you are, I I think I'm right, somebody will correct me, you are the first national political party leader based or from or living in Bristol. I think I am, yes, as far as I know. It's quite good for Bristol, isn't it, in a way? Going to get like a lot of national kind of attention as well for the city? I hope so. Yeah. So my my co-leader, Adrian, is based in Norwich. And so that makes us the first, certainly in Green Party history, we're the first leaders of the party from outside London or the South East. That's good. That's good. Have you been uh, congratulated by the great and good of Bristol since you've won? <laughs> um uh, I, I'm not actually in Bristol yet. Um oh, I, oh. I dare say I will. Uh, I had to come up to London for the announcement and then I had some press up here and I will be back in Bristol soon. I'll be back in Bristol by the time this goes out. Do you think when you won that the uh, the heart sank for Mayor Marvin <laughs> Rees? <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't like to <laughs> second guess how he felt about it. Um, he hasn't sent you his congratulations then yet, no? He he might have done. I must admit, I'm slightly behind on my councillor emails this so week. So it could be in your inbox, maybe. It could be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's going to be, I mean, I kind of jest, but act- actually, in, in many regards, it's going to be quite interesting now. The picture in Bristol is, you know, the Green Party on 20, 24 or 22? I always get the... 24 well, councillors, which is the same councillors. number that Labour have. They're the same yeah. number as Labour. So the kind of dynamic, political dynamic has changed in the chamber anyway. With you now being Green leader co-leader rather they're obviously being you know as there is in politics there's sort of personality clashes and policy indecisions across both you know several parties in the city um 
do you think they might be a bit worried now more Labour in Bristol? Uh, well, I think they should be worried. Um, we, you know, we not only have the same number of councillors, but we also came a, a strong second place on the mayoral election, and um, a huge majority of the councillors within the Bristol West constituency are now Green Party councillors. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because, and I think that feeds into the natural national picture with, with Labour that even though that's the case, Fangham Debonair won that seat effectively twice as MP with one of the biggest majorities in the country. And, and, and I mean, you've got a record 477 councillors across 141 councils. The Green Party have got to be taken seriously now, nationally, and obviously locally in Bristol, Bristol West. I presume you're going to stand, are you? Yeah, uh, I was, I've been reselected by my local party already. So, yes, okay. I am the candidate for Bristol West or possibly Bristol Central, as it may be known. Because oh, the there's... new one. Yeah, the boundary change. Yeah, that's a key seat, isn't it? It's a key seat. Yeah, absolutely. For, for the Greens. And the, would, you, would you argue that perhaps that whilst sort of nationally the direction of Labour is to become perhaps a bit more centrist and a bit more practical about trying to gain power with Keir Starmer, and we've just seen the, the Labour Party conference in Brighton, where he's trying to shake off, you know, elements of, of, of the left, the elements of a kind of a perhaps even, dare I say, a younger demographic. Um, that is where the Greens can start to make some serious ground. And is that part of your strategy? Yes, I think so. And um, I think it's worth saying that uh, at least in the 10 years that I've been a Green Party member, that's where the Green Party has always been. Um, if if Labour want to vacate that space and leave that to the Greens, that's fine with me. Um, but I think our policies are, are, are very... What, clearly... you always think they've been to the left? Because there was some criticism on the left in the past of the Greens being seen as a kind of, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, you probably heard the sort of Kiwi, mango, watermelon kind of thing around uh, Green Party. You've got the Kiwi, the traditional environmentalists. You've got the mangoes, which are Green Liberal Democrats and watermelons, which are sort of eco-socialists. This is a thing that's sort of banded about the Green Party. And there was criticism for them being a little bit middle class and a bit centrist and a bit worthy by people of the left. Do you accept that? That was the perception. I accept that it was the perception. I don't think it was a very accurate reflection of our actual policies, um, okay. but I think yeah. it was a fair reflection of some of the people that uh, vote for us. And, I, and, I, and you know, our, if you actually objectively look at our policies... Um, we are very clearly in favour of, um, you know, publicly and democratically owned public services, fighting austerity, which, you know, we were doing at a time when Labour thought that austerity was was a perfectly good idea. So, you know, objectively, I think our policies are, are on the left. But I think that what we bring is a, a different approach, perhaps, than Labour do, in that there are people I know that I knew when I was younger who are the kind of people who would never dream of voting Labour. But actually, when you present left-wing policies with a more grassroots, bottom-up perspective, which is really the approach that the Green Party takes wherever possible, it's about making decisions at the lowest practicable level in and of the community involving the people who are affected by them, then often people from across the political spectrum actually agree with and, and really like those policies. And so it's... Because you don't, you don't whip members, do you? Like other, no. other parties. So I know you haven't obviously only got one MP, but just as a general kind of rule, you can you can vote in, in any direction, which is a slightly different model than other political parties. 
Yes, and also we're a really non-hierarchical party. So um, our policies are set by members, one member, one vote at conference. It's more democratic, you, you, you yeah, feel. Yeah, I wanted to be yeah. part of a party where, as a member, I could have a positive influence. So I, I used to work in renewable energy. I'm an engineer by training. Yeah. And I really liked the Green Party, but I thought that our energy policy was a little bit out of date and could do with a little bit more detail. And so I joined and very quickly got involved in the Energy Policy Working Group to help improve those policies. And you have, I think there's about 53,000 members or roughly around that in the Green Party. And yet yep. only around 6,000, so just over 10% voted for you, uh, both of you to be co-leaders? Yeah, so the turnout for the leadership election was 22%, which isn't great. Um, uh, I'm not, yeah, I'm not very pleased with that. Why is that then? Because, I mean, that's very low. And, 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 you know, you could argue, you know, what you've just said around the democratic processes of the Green Party, but effectively, you know, you coming in as as leader is arguably a democratic deficit if, if you've got, you know, only 22% turnout and, you know, only, you know, a, a, a percentage of those voting for you. Yeah, I, I'm disappointed with that turnout. And one of the things that Adrian and I were saying in our leadership campaign is that we do think that um, the party needs to look at its structures and governance, which were set up when the party was about a tenth of the size that it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they worked at the time, but I think they're groaning under the weight a little bit now that we're growing. And obviously, we have ambitions to grow much more, and so we need to look at how we can. Was it not promoted enough? Was it was it not promoted enough within the party? That seems incredibly low for a for a leadership contest in a political party. Twenty two percent of members. Yeah, I I don't know exactly what the causes are. To be honest, um, obviously, leadership candidates don't get to see um, behind the curtain in exactly how the electoral returning officer is running the election, and we shouldn't. We shouldn't be interfering in that sure. to, to have a good democracy, but that is something that we want to look at now that the election has happened. Um, it was promoted, emails were sent to members, um, but uh, there were some problems with people um, sort of not receiving the first email and, and, and a few issues. So we do want to look at that. It is it is a priority. So to that's make something sure that you that want to improve and have impact upon as, as leader. On the, on the joint leaders thing, which is obviously a bit different, can you give me one example where that's been effective in politics? I I am very fond of the Green Party's uh, tradition of having joint leaders. It's not it's not a requirement. So in this leadership election, some of the candidates were standing as job share pairs, and some were standing alone. Our yeah. system allows either. Um, but I think that it is it's a healthy reflection of the Green Party's different way of doing leadership, that we don't approach leadership as a top-down dictatorial um, mandate where we get to decide everything about the party. It's it's very much recognising that the way the Green Party does things, we are um, we're the figureheads, we're spokespeople externally and internally, we help set the tone of discussions, um, and we we set priorities and we're part of the Green Party executive, which is the wider so executive committee that together makes a lot of the strategic decisions to the party. But we're not kind of the single person that's in charge and is going to impose their will on mm. the rest of the party, whether they like it or not. And that's... Um, what if you disagree, though? What if you don't get and you end up not getting on with, with each other? Well, you know, we chose to run together. It's not like our names are drawn out of a hat. So I think it's partly up to the candidates to make sure that you're standing with somebody that you agree with on at least 
the key issues. I'm sure that Adrian and I don't agree on absolutely everything, but um, yeah, and if we don't, we work it out. Let's talk about why you won. What did you offer? What did you offer differently than than the others? Uh, I think experience as elected representatives is probably quite a large part of it. We were the only candidates or candidate pair where both of us have been elected by the public as elected representatives. Um, And I think that that's important because when you've been a councillor or an MP or a member of the London Assembly or whatever, it means that you have persuaded people that probably weren't previously Greens to vote for you. And then once you've been elected, you've had to work with people from across the political spectrum. You know how to communicate with people that have a different perspective, come from a different background and to bring people with you. Did you have any specific policies that that were slightly different than the other candidates? Um, We weren't campaigning on policy proposals because as leaders, we can't we can't say if elected, we will make the Green Party. But you can't, you can't state your case X, and y, give your opinion. You can give your opinion. On, yeah, we can. Yeah. And yeah. we did on, on, on various issues that come up. So feel free to ask me if you want to ask my position on a particular thing. But we didn't have a, a particular policy platform per se. Yeah. As an active member of the Green Party, though, I have co-proposed loads of, loads of motions to conference, including our upcoming autumn conference in a couple of weeks. Um, quite a lot of the ones that I've been looking at recently um, have been improving some of our uh, diversity and inclusion policies, for example. So um, it's only a, a, this is more of an internal facing thing, but. Um, yeah. And, and on that, there's, there's obviously been quite a big, big source of conflict in the party, as there has also been a little bit in the Labour Party at times as well on the trans issue. Mm-hmm. That became quite a heated discussion within the campaign. I don't know internally how it operates, but certainly as an outsider looking in, through social media, that seemed to be quite a, a key issue that different factions or different groups or different individuals within the Green Party were trying to kind of wrestle with. Yeah. And, and you have a particular position on that. Yeah, I am very definitely and very clearly pro-trans rights. Green Party has policy that trans women are women, trans men are men, non-binary identities exist and are valid. And I'm fully behind that. Um, I've also supported specific policies on specific areas of, say, trans healthcare that have gone to and been passed at conference. Um, so, yeah, I'm very clearly in support of trans rights. Um, that said, I do recognise that it's an area of quite like rapid social change and that not everyone in the UK is maybe fully up to speed on the issues. Um, they might not, you know, they might get the get the terms wrong sometimes you know make mistakes and I think it's important not to um criticize people if they are genuine honest mistakes you know perhaps a lack of understanding um because that's the interesting thing isn't it from from tell me if I'm wrong from the from your uh, approach uh with, with Adrian is very much around trying to professionalize the Green Party to make them more of a elect you know electoral alternative not just to be a a campaign group for green issues to have a broader kind of connection but also sort of parallel to that as we have seen a little bit in the battle as I said with with the Labour Party is that trans issues do seem to be front and foremost of a lot of rhetoric and a lot of conversations for what is a you know a small small percentage of the electorate and actually arguably 
and irrelevancy for the vast majority. So how are you going to square that up? Mm, so I think, I kind of think that it's two separate issues. We need to internally have a welcoming and inclusive party to that's welcoming and inclusive to, to all people. And that means standing up for trans rights. And it also means having an approach where um, if people don't feel fully up to speed on the issue or have some concerns, there's there's a way of them exploring those issues in a in a well facilitated environment where um, where it, it, there's no such thing as a stupid question, um, and that our liberation groups. So the Green Party internally has uh, what we refer to as liberation groups. So that's LGBTIQA plus Greens, which I'm a member of, Green Party Women, which I'm a member of, and then also other ones like Greens of Colour, um, Disability Group, and so on. And one of those, the Jewish Greens, has already been running some really good internal workshops, uh, like a roadshow to local parties on understanding anti-Semitism and what it is, what it isn't, how to recognise it, um, and I, I attended the one of those that was in Bristol and I thought it was really, really good. And I say that as somebody that perhaps didn't know as much about anti-Semitism before. And so mm. I was one of those people that that sort of 100% meant well, but perhaps was a little bit worried that sometimes I w- might not get the terminology right or might not n- realise that something was anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. So the the organisers of LGBTIQA Greens are thinking of doing something similar around trans rights and Adrian and I are really keen to support them in doing that because I think that would be really constructive internally for the party in terms of making sure that all members are aware of the issues that trans people face but then externally you're quite right and to be honest I think a lot of our trans members would say the same thing that we don't want to be talking about this all day every day we have to get our policies right (laughs) but then you know I've got trans friends who are members who are like, I want to get on with tackling the climate emergency that, you know, they would say they want their rights to be respected and they want policies that will, that will protect their rights. But they're also concerned about all of those other areas about poverty, you know, about fuel poverty, about the climate, about other types of social injustice that they want to see tackled as well. So we absolutely have to Hmm. remember everybody else in society at the same a, time. Yeah, not that's, let a really, ourselves... yeah, that's a really good point because I think there's always that assumption, isn't there, in any kind of um, any kind of group that people are sort of solely kind of focused on that. And, and, and I think that it's the trans kind of debate's been, I would say, kind of largely co-opted and jumped on from both sides, often by people that aren't actually have direct lived experience of the issue anyway. It's become weaponized, I guess, as a kind of a stick from, from both sides to hit each other over with. And as you say, probably a large proportion of of people in the trans community are, as you say, you know, obviously want to be seen and heard and validated, but also want to be talking about the broader, wider issues as well. Yeah, we we, we have to get our policy and our, um, we have to be clear on our policy and communicate it well on trans rights, but not in isolation, I, I mean, I, alongside I mean, got, everything yeah, else. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've got to be honest, I've been in situations with people, um, you know, in certain communities, and I, and I think you probably accept that the Green Party uh, it is you know is wanting to appall you just said earlier about being seen as more left and maybe attracting uh working class voters as well I, I, you know i've had conversations with people they feel so detached from that whole thing that it feels like it doesn't talk to their to their experience and their lives yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna push back to you a little bit on that yeah. Um, so, and I'm also going to make a book recommendation at the same time. Um, I'm currently partway through reading uh, Sean Fay's book, The Transgender Issue. Yeah. 
And in it, she she pushes back on that framing of trans rights being in opposition to um, the interests of working class people, because actually the majority of trans people are working class. They're on low incomes. They're often from working class backgrounds. Their experiences are often somewhat erased by the way that the media, especially the mainstream media, covers these issues. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important not to frame their interest as kind of one or the other. Sure. Um, when's the last time you went into a pub in, I don't know, somewhere like Hartcliffe or Safemead and had a conversation with somebody about trans issues or something? Or, yeah. You know what I mean? That, there's a, you know, would you accept is there is a bit of an issue? Would you accept that maybe perhaps it's how and where the conversation takes place and who's involved in that, I suppose? Yeah, that's fair. Um let's go wider then let's talk about the the green party moving from a i guess a party of protest to a, a party of government or a party of increasing more mps when you see labor or the tories to a lesser degree but when you see labor you know labor for green deal when you see suddenly the mayor in bristol being interested in bees and and, and wild meadows and all this sort of stuff do do, do you welcome that or or do you see it as just nicking your ideas? Well, it's. I think it's positive that the other political parties are feeling the pressure so much from the Green Party and from the wider environmental movement that they need to be seen to be talking the talk on uh, climate and environmental issues. But I have to say that... Do you believe, my, Do you believe they're sincere? That's the thing. In my experience so far is that, generally speaking, there's perhaps a few exceptions, but generally speaking, the other parties are not walking the walk they're not following that up with actual concrete uh changes in policy and changes in what's happening on the ground i mean listeners based in bristol will be very aware of examples like uh, bristol airport for example and also the clean air zone in bristol which bristol green councillors have been pushing for for years and you were quite central to the climate emergency stuff. You were quite prominent in that personally, weren't you? I wrote and proposed it, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it, yeah well, it, well, kind of exactly, really, is that because I, I suppose I'm trying to sort of put myself in your position, which is like, well, actually, you know, this is this is a good thing because, you know, power is taking this on. Or is there another side that, in effect, that, you know, the Labour Party are sort of tra- trying to triangulate the Greens a little bit, you know, by, you know, proposing these ideas and sort of putting them across as if they're their own? Yeah, but proposals and pledges are worth literally nothing unless they're actually acted on. Um, and, you know, it's it's great that all of the other parties voted for my climate emergency motion in 2018 and agreed to set a carbon neutral target date of 2030 for Bristol. Do they say so that we, it's yours, Carla? Do they, when they, do they say that it was your idea or not? Funny you should say that. No, <laughs> no? they don't tend to, no. Does that annoy, um, does that annoy you? Does that annoy you? Oh, it annoyed me for the first year or so. I've kind of given up to, right, okay. caring about it now. Um, so it's all PR then? You think there's, there's no meat and bones, there's no real substance behind it? It's reactive, not proactive? Well, I'd love to be proven wrong, but we're not. I, it doesn't look to me as though Bristol is progressing towards that 2030 carbon neutral target date, anything like fast enough. Uh, I've been, um, I'm hoping to use my... Um, my role as chair of overview and scrutiny management board, while I already have been using it to uh, scrutinise progress towards the that carbon neutral target date, because 
it's there's no point having a plan and a strategy unless you're going to turn it into action. Would it depend which part of the Labour time with the climate crisis to wait? But wouldn't it depend which which Labour which Labour politician? Because obviously the Metro Mayor Dan Norris has come out quite strong against Bristol Airport, hasn't he? Which might have caused a little bit of an internal fracas. I, I don't know. We want to try and get him on the show. But um, so would it depend? He sort of has, you know, quite good green credentials or sees himself as, as that, doesn't he? I was certainly pleasantly surprised to see him come out so clearly and strongly against Bristol Airport expansion. That was that was a positive intervention from him. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. What did you feel about the um, the abstention by, uh, by the yeah. Labour, Bristol Labour Yes, the abstention by the representative of Bristol City Council at the West of England meeting was disappointing, especially given that thanks to the motion which the Greens got passed at a full council meeting uh, a little while back now, the the mayor and cabinet did have a mandate to vote, uh, a very clear mandate to vote against Bristol Airport expansion and still chose not to. Yeah, that there has been a lot of uh, factional, you know, it's politics, this is going to happen, but there's been a lot of sort of factional infighting uh, probably between Labour and the Greens a bit in the city and lots of people probably outside of Bristol kind of see the the only way of probably thwarting a continual dominance of a, a Tory government is for some kind of left alliance. Um, and yet in Bristol, it feels like anything but that at times. Well, the Green Party are always happy to work with other parties on areas we agree and we always have been. Is, there, is it more of a sort of a few personality clashes perhaps in Bristol rather than policy? Um, well, I think, I'd, I honestly, I'm not sure. I think Labour is, as everybody knows, quite a big tent. And so uh, the Labour elected representatives that you're working with in one place uh, are often quite different in outlook and yeah. politics from Labour representatives in another part of the country. Well, I guess, it, like anything, it depends who you're talking to and where. There is a there is a stereotype, isn't there, amongst the Green Party? And there is a stereotype that it is a bit white and it is a bit middle class. And I do know that, and I've spoken to other people on this show, like Cleo Lake and Tony Dyer, that very much feel central to trying to broaden that out. So I do think the Green Party is getting um, more diverse and that's a really positive thing. But I agree that we still have an image as a, as um, we're, we're, we are too white and middle class. Would you see yourself as white and middle class? Well, you're obviously white. Would you see yourself as middle class? Yeah, I, ha- I have to acknowledge I'm fairly middle class. Yeah. Okay. Okay. yeah. <laughs> um, but a lot of our councillors aren't. You know, we, we, we've now got several. Um, we, we've got three black councillors. We've got quite a number of councillors from working class backgrounds mm-hmm. we've also got um a great gender balance we've got lots of lgbtiqa plus councillors we've got um which is interesting and councillors, I, yeah, several councillors over 60 several councillors in their 20s and even yeah. te- one in their teens just going to stop the chat there i hope you're enjoying the show and i want you to understand genuinely what is different and what is unique about the Bristol Cable it's it's the membership model of course where people chuck money in each month and it's run by local people in the city but it's also more than that it enables us to not have to take advertising from corporates we don't want to it enables us not to have to take promotion adverts from politicians which did happen 
with the mayoral candidates with many of the other outlets in the city. It enables us to be free and to pursue objective coverage. Um, and I've got lots of friends and there's some fantastic journalists and media outlets in the city and I've worked across many. But there is a uniqueness to the cable where there is a, a real sense of trying to use the media not just to tell stories but to have real impact on communities and not just hold power to account but to uplift voices to be brave enough to talk about issues that some people swerve and stay away from and we want to reach 3,000 members we're at 2,700 at the moment and if you really believe in a better media you might be one of these people who complains about it this is a real opportunity to contribute you will get a say at AGMs and a say in meetings and, and I think that you should seriously consider this and I'm not trying to preach at you but this is a real chance to shape how we tell stories in the city so please have a look on the website and dig your card out and just chip some money in and um, you genuinely will not regret it back to the chat are you in favour of the mayoral system by the way no no okay Carla you (laughs) campaigned vociferously for for Sandy though didn't you yeah, because the mayoral election wasn't a referendum on the mayoral model. It was a question of who you want to be in that role for the next few years. Obviously, the Tories and the Lib Dems were using it as a vehicle to get rid of the mayoral system, weren't they? They Both were, the and I think that that was very misleading of uh, the Lib Dems and the Tories to do that because um, the the rules, which we can't change, say that the the earliest that a referendum could happen on whether to get rid of the role is 2022. Yeah. Um, which means that the earliest you'd be able to get rid of the mayor would be like 2023 or And 2024, you would still need a majority probably. in the council chamber to, in order to... But... Yeah, I thought standing on a back me to sack me ticket, well, you know, it's a nice slogan, but it that role is going to exist and somebody is going to be need, need to be in it doing a good okay. job for the next three years. Yeah. Wouldn't you rather somebody that actually has a manifesto and a plan for doing it rather than yeah. someone that's just plans to sit on their hands? But you also don't agree with the mayoral system. Just, just in a nutshell, say why? It's uh, a concentration of power in the hands of one person, which is generally not a healthy way to do democracy. Ultimately, I would prefer to see a system where councillors have more say because I think that better decisions are made when you have a more more representative, more diverse group of people in the room making those decisions. Doesn't that slow everything down a bit, though, and kind of get all a bit, oh, come on, get on with it? The selling point is meant to be about its ability to get stuff done and to deliver. But despite having concentrated the power in the hands of one person for several years, I'm not sure it has really delivered okay. that much for Bristol. We still don't have a clean air zone. We still don't have an arena. Yeah. All those things were supposedly on the brink of happening several years ago and still haven't. Well, why, did, why, why do you think Mayor Marvin Reese's heart sinks when you step up to speak? I think you'd have to ask him that. <laughs> I, I, I just anticipated this. And when I, when I see your name, I, I, my heart often... See, it's because it's the usual kind of, you know, chess game, trying to get a tweet or a blog out of the answer that that feeds that line that, uh, you know, Labour Party don't care about the planet and I don't care about the planet and all that type of 
stuff, which is the only thing which is so just demoralising in the way uh, you do politics. For those that don't know, that was a, a video that, that went kind of a bit viral on social media in the council chamber. I think you quite know, but you went, every time you step up, my heart kind of sinks. And um, how, how did that make you feel, honestly, at the time? Well, it's not very nice to have someone say that about you. It's not the first time he's um, reacted very negatively to me asking quite quite an innocent, justified question. So for context, this, this happened in... Uh, a meeting called Members Forum, which is the, spe- the, the specific purpose of Members Forum is that it's a place, um, it's an hour-long meeting just before full council, roughly once a month, that is specifically designated for councillors to ask the mayor questions in public and to get written and or verbal answers. So that's the whole point of the meeting. That's why it exists. And so I submitted two questions to that meeting that were asking the mayor to sign up uh, to support initiatives that would help to accelerate progress on tackling the climate emergency. One of them was getting Bristol to officially endorse the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill, uh, which is a bill that uh, Caroline Lucas proposed, but which is supported cross-party. Uh, it's a private members' bill in Parliament, um, and although that's you know that's in Parliament, not not in local councils, lots of other local councils, including Labour-led councils, have backed it. And and there is a campaign to get more councils to back it because we think that it would help to show MPs and especially government MPs that there is broad-based support if lots of local authorities come out and support. And the other one was asking him to back an international initiative called the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which, Mm -hmm. as the name suggests, the idea is to encourage an international treaty uh, which has a plan for gradually reducing in a sustainable and economically just way the amount of fossil fuel extraction that is taking place across the world using a similar model to the nuclear non-proliferation treaty but it it was battered away and dismissed what what i wanted to ask and and the thing is they wouldn't have cost him like it what you know these questions weren't please will you spend tens of millions on this thing yeah i see i'm not i mean i don't know i'm not convinced it's really anything to do with the actual question or the policy i i I wonder and and tell me if i'm wrong have you had clashes before this point or 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 not or or was this just or you got caught in the crossfire a little bit because I sense frustration um, was coming from, you know, because I think when you're in that role sometimes, I guess after a while you, you'd start to get a little bit defensive and feel like, oh, God, what is it now? What have I got? You know, and that it felt like a sort of frustration rather than it being, because I aimed at you specifically, or am I wrong? Well, he has certainly reacted in a in a very negative way towards me and other Green councillors asking him questions previously. I mean, he made quite a quite an uncalled for personal comment to one of my green councillor colleagues in the meeting as well yeah um but to you personally before for him to go my heart sinks every time he know, hasn't said exactly that before but he has uh reacted reacted negatively and uh, and avoided avoided answering questions that i've asked a number of times before so avoided your questions a bit but there was an official complaint made not just by the green party by the conservatives and the lib dems to the council is that right or to the scrutiny committee or something who, who was it? Uh, i'm not sure who it was directed to whether it was to the mayor directly or whether it right, was okay. um yeah. whether it was to a, a committee that's responsible for looking at behavior of elected representatives it's called is he a, just being ganged up on a bit here i don't think so just 
This happened in a meeting that is specifically designed to be a space for councillors to ask the mayor questions. He seemed to really resent being held to account by elected representatives, bearing in mind that's our job. He seemed to really dislike the fact that people were asking him questions in that meeting. And, you know, I know politics can be toxic. I'm sure that being in the mayor's position can be a very uncomfortable place to be at times. But I think that as a bare minimum, politicians need to be willing to hear questions from other elected representatives and respond in a civil manner at the very least. Can I just play devil's advocate a minute? I I think could that also be sometimes how people communicate that you know he is a sort of he's a working class lad you know you know mixed race that kind of communicates in, in a perhaps a direct unpolished political way sometimes and that gets misconstrued as you know as bullying maybe or as or as being rude well I'm not calling it bullying um you don't think he's I- a bully I know that that cross-party complaint went in. The, the leaders of the other parties just got on and did that. I didn't know that was happening until until they'd already sent it in. Um, so you don't you don't the, think he is a bully? I I think that he perhaps has a bit of a thin skin. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he uh, sometimes responds in quite an emotional way to what are quite reasonable questions, not just from myself, but from other councillors, from other parties and from members of the public in the public forum. I, you know, there was a, there was an incident a few years ago when an NHS worker made a statement concerned about air quality and he seemed to turn on them and blame mm-hmm. them as if they were personally responsible for the emissions from NHS vehicles. I didn't get into politics to attack anyone. I got into politics to tackle the climate emergency. Mm-hmm. I, I, partly through uni, I had an epiphany about really quite how bad climate change was. And I realized that I didn't even see it as a choice. I just saw it as yeah. humanity is facing this terrible crisis. I have to dedicate my whole life to doing whatever but, but, I can. And that, that, that's very admirable. And obviously that, that is your kind of calling. But, but honestly, politics is, is dirty my... though, isn't it, Carla? You know that. And particularly now your head is above the parapet and you'll be in the national front line. Well, you might get drawn and pulled into some of these little, you know, arguments or uh, personal kind of battles. That, and, and you're kind of, you also need to be kind of ready to face that as well. I do. And give, that, and give that out, potentially. I mean, it may not be your style to do that, perhaps, but kind of that you're in the gladiatorial arena now, aren't you? Yeah, but one of mine and Adrian's, my new co-leaders, you know, our our priority is to is to bring compassion back into politics, whether that's compassion for ourselves and each other, regardless of political party or for our wider communities and even for the wider natural world. Yeah. That's that's why I went into politics and that's that's my priority. I wanted to just ask you a bit around how the Green Party uh, well twofold really, how the Green Party wants to gain more seats, gain more kind of traction, and also accusations of potentially splitting the left vote. You know, Stride is a good example of that, isn't it? That that was kind of doing the doing the doing the rounds a little bit. Is how can you, you know, gain more seats without kind of enabling the Tories? Well, the Green Party have been winning seats across the country from all parties across the political spectrum. In fact, several of the by elections that we've won in just in the last couple of weeks have been in uh, formerly Conservative held seats, including in North Somerset near Bristol but also there's been some recent wins in Hampshire that's our first Green Councillor in Hampshire um, just a few days ago 
And we've also won some in Norfolk recently. So it's, you know, it's not just from Labour, it is also from the Conservatives and and from Lib Dems really across the spectrum. And I think the idea of, you know, blaming Greens for splitting the vote, that that is premised on a belief that all left wing people's votes belong to the Labour Party. And I think that a lot of voters are increasingly annoyed with that perception of them as being owned by the Labour Party. That's that's not the case. And a lot of voters are, are getting quite frustrated with decisions that Labour politicians are making, whether it's nationally or locally, and are tired of voting tactically for a candidate that they see as the least worst option. Yeah. And on us are seeing, especially in places like Bristol, Brighton, Norwich, Sheffield, Wales, that if they want uh, a green councillor, they want green policies, then they can vote green and they'll get green. You must be relieved to see the back then of, of Corbyn's Labour in some regard. Um, well, I, yeah. It, the, it's, it I mean, it's the Greens, doesn't it, ultimately, I think. We'll we'll see, but it certainly seems that um, Labour are returning to the, uh, the, the Labour that existed when I was growing up mm. um, under Blair, um, which is why I never even considered joining the Labour Party because the Labour Party that was on offer when I was politically coming of age was not a party that I really had any common ground with. You must be, in terms of Bristol West, quite confident, you know, when if and when the election does come, which, what, three years, four years? Well, or sooner, who knows, yeah. really. Um, I, the Greens are uh, regularly polling as a third party in the country now. We've had several polls in a row that have come out putting us on around nine or ten percent and you need to keep that momentum don't you you need to keep that momentum because you lost it a bit didn't you when it was gaining before and I think there was a couple of sort of car crash interviews on national media with uh, the previous kind of green leader and people stopped taking you seriously again this is a real moment now to capitalize on to make this a sustained real change absolutely and Adrian and I that's one of our priorities to solidify that place as a, the third party in the country and then to build on that and to carry on getting more seats elected at a local level and also at a national level getting more green MPs elected including myself and this and, and, and the second part to that is increasingly becoming important there, I think there was a video that uh, that Sandy Hall Riven the, the green mayoral candidate put out during the campaign where he was quite critical of or frustrated rather sorry that um, seeing Green Party politicians only talking about green issues and saying about wanting to to broaden this out more to to social issues that affect people as well. And it seemed to get quite a good traction amongst the Green Party that there there is a kind of feeling now that yes, those things are important. Yes, you're called the Green Party, which kind of sets perhaps almost sets a barrier up a little bit. But those other issues are also important that you need to start talking about and having clear set policies for as well. Is that something that's crucial for you in your leadership? Absolutely. I I think it's fundamental to the Green Party, um, which, you know, originally we were called people. So we've always been about yeah, remember, yeah, looking yeah. after people as well as the environment. And I think the Green Party is the only party that sees 
um, environmental justice and social justice as two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the other parties where they kind of think of climate policies as a bolt-on that you can add on to their existing carbon-intensive economic policy, transport policy, and so on. And then they go, oh, but we'll, we'll have some bicycles and some trees, so it'll be okay rather than seeing that all of these things are interlinked. So housing policy, for example, um, you know, standing up for tenants' rights, making sure that housing, whether it's rented or owned, is of good quality. It's insulated to make sure that people have warm, comfortable homes with low, affordable energy bills, that that's all tied up with climate justice and that you can't have one without the other. And it affects people from poorer communities above and beyond anywhere else. You need to rattle the cage to your some of your Clifton constituents then, do you? Why? I mean, you, you say that. I don't know if that's slightly in jest, but has, has like, I think, I think there's a stereotype about what people perhaps think Greens think, but has a, has a Clifton Green member said something contrary to what I've said? Because if so, I haven't heard them. No, you just said that actually sometimes it's the people in more affluent areas that are responsible for creating more carbon and, and emissions and stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm, saying, every... I'm saying that obviously you're, you're Clifton constituents then, you need to, you're in a position to be able to, to, to influence that, obviously, you know, being a more affluent part of Bristol. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, our, as a political party, our, our Uh, focus is on system change. It's about changing the policies at a national and local level that help to tackle systemic issues and help people to make the right decisions. You know, our our job isn't to turn up on people's doorsteps and say, you need to live differently. (laughs) You know, to an extent, um, people making individual changes in their life to reduce their carbon emissions is a really positive thing. And, you know, I say that as somebody that has never owned a car and is vegan. So I do take these never in my a personal car. life. Nope. No, nor me, actually. There's more, um, more if you fail in my driving test, though, rather than actually. <laughs> yours is a conscious decision. Mine is just a mark of failure. Well, it's a conscious decision combined with being lucky that I've lived in places where I've... Where well, that is true, because if you had, you know, five kids and you lived in Lawrence Weston and you had to drive into the centre, that's always a thing that, you know, I struggle with. How can you answer that question if somebody needs to drive... And they've got a big family. What do you do? It's easier, isn't it, for people to that live closer to the centre? You know what I mean? Yeah. So with anything like that, the, the, the systemic approach is to make walking, cycling and public transport much easier, um, more affordable in the case of public transport, more reliable, so that those other options are an attractive option that people are going to take seriously. And then that makes it much easier for them to switch. Is Bristol the worst place in the country for public transport? It's certainly not in the top few, is it? <laughs> um, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I've not lived in all the other UK cities, so I couldn't honestly say. But um, the public transport just, you know, well, transport generally is so congested. And yeah, it is a real challenge facing Bristol. And it's it's really one that needs to be tackled. But it's difficult to tackle while we have a privatised public transport system that the council... Uh, and the Metro Mayor can only exert quite limited control over. Would you take that back into public hands? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I've, I was a loud and proud supporter of the Acorn campaign on taking buses back yeah, into... Yeah, you're, you're a member of Acorn, aren't you? I, think, I am, I did my yeah. research, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and I'm also um, a supporter of We Own It, which is a national charity about bringing public services back into public ownership. 
Are you more left wing then? Are you more left wing than most of the Labour MPs and the Labour mayor? Would you say? Um, I mean, without in the, con- in the context a... of public ownership argument, yeah, right? yeah, yes, a, a majority of the UK public are in favour of public ownership of public services. They just one regaled of those... on it, haven't they? The, the Labour under Starmer has regaled on a lot of that stuff that was proposed previously from Corbyn over post office and energy and yeah. stuff like that. And I think they're shooting themselves in the foot because they're they're going against the majority of the UK public. And would that be something that a lot of Green Party members believe in public ownership? Oh, I, I mean, I would be very surprised if you managed to find me one that wasn't. I think really, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's, I that. that's okay. Yeah, you see, this is what I mean. I think I think some people, and I'm gonna slightly pick on you no, and say, including you, have some yeah. slightly out of kilter perceptions about what Green Party policy is. So, yeah. so Green policy is like strongly in favour of public ownership of public services. Obviously, in the immediate term, we have the COP26 climate conference yeah. coming up in a few weeks, which I'm hoping to be at. Um, that's a big opportunity, Carla. You're going to be there, are you? Okay, great. I mean, yep. I, I think that's a real big opportunity for the media to give a real focus on that, for that to be front and centre in people's living rooms, I think. Yeah, we. It, it's an opportunity for the Greens to put forward our bold, but also straightforward and common sense policies, things like our Green New Deal, mm-hmm. which will mean massive investment in lowering carbon emissions at the same time as um, creating many more sustainable, secure jobs for people and improving people's quality of life. And we want to use this opportunity of the coming climate conference to put those policies really centre stage in the political debate and help to move the Overton window in the direction of policies that will support people and planet. Are you hoping, I just want to leave on that, are you hoping that there will be a bigger focus on the Green Party conference in the mainstream media? Because obviously there's been, you know, it's been all over the, the, the Labour one words that I presume the Conservatives is going to be as well this week. Yeah, I hope that the media will be interested in Green Party conference. Uh, we're now polling at 9%, the third most popular party in the country. And they were, the media were certainly very interested in our leadership results Last week, I'm in my first few hours as leader, I had interviews on BBC Radio 4, um, News Channel, BBC Radio 1, Radio 2, Channel 4, Financial Times, The Times. uh, You are are slumming it coming down to talk to me on this show, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, not slumming it. No, okay. I, l- I love the cable. I'm a, I'm a cable member, don't you know? I did know that, but I didn't know if I was going to say it in the interview or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can cut it out if yeah, you want to. I think we probably might. Uh, don't worry, no. I don't have any editorial control. <laughs> <laughs> Nor do I. Funny enough, I'll just know that's, a, that's a Adam and Rosa. Okay, thank you so much, Carla. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Carla. All the best. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Many thanks to Carla Denyer for talking to us on this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked. We will be back next week with a new guest and a brand new topic. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer and Blue Dot for our music. And if you do want to become a member of The Cable and join 2,600 Bristolian members all across the city chipping in every month, then please go to the website to find out more.